there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Well, hello, hello, hello. Do you remember being a teenager? It's some years since I've been a teenager, but something I remember is about my love for bands then. I had favourite bands. I had favourite musicians. But you might even say as a teenager, they idolise and they put bands and musicians on a pedestal. Well, imagine at 19 landing your first job in the music industry. The year was 1974, was actually the year I finished school. Annie Wright began working for RCA Records with some of the world's best musicians. Not only has she worked in the music industry, but also in film production. And yes, she's managed to keep her feet on the ground. Welcome, Annie Wright. Good to be here. Thanks, Karen. Oh, it's so exciting that you've given me the time today because we've recently met and we've been talking and we've got so many things in common and you just make me laugh. How was it that you landed your first job with RCA Records? Well, it wasn't something out of a um, plan that you would go, well, I want to get into the music industry. No, it wasn't planned like that at all. I was only 19. I wanted to be a graphic artist. I loved art. My favourite subjects was English and art, which I did quite well at at school. Everything else I failed <laughs> because I wasn't interested in science and economy and the rest of them. I was quite a social butterfly too. But uh, my mother forced me to stay on from fourth year to high school certificate, even though I wanted to get out and earn money, which I did actually. I did. I worked under age. Uh, they won't get me now. It was uh, Woolies at Chatsworth, underage at uh, 15, working behind the uh, lolly counter and the record counter. So that kind of, in a way, was the beginnings of what I can see how you could get people's attention to uh, playing music and getting a good response. I didn't know that then. Growing up, I was like any other teenager. I had my transistor radio close to me while I did my homework. I mean, no wonder I couldn't do science. <laughs> I, kind of be, I was glued to that tranny. And, of course, um, collect top 40s as you do, 2UW, 2UE, 2SM, the big rock station. There was no FM back then. Oh, my gosh. Can I just interrupt? Yes. The transistor radio. You just took me on another journey. Our neighbour worked in the Navy and he bought us our first transistors when he went up to Japan because Japan was the place that made everything then. Mm-hmm. He bought them back for us. Yes, yes. It was a big deal, wasn't it? Oh, 
It, it really was. was, especially when you had your own. I mean, you had the family radio was in the kitchen. Yes. You know, this is before TV, folks. <laughs> well, not quite, but close. Oh, it's close, the 50s. I mean, we did, I can't remember what year we got on TV, but it was very black and white. Uh, Colour didn't come in until 75. Yeah, well, 56 TV came to Australia. That mm. was the year I was born. Ah, right. And I think you're right, 70 – I was at Teachers College when Colour first came in, so that was just after 1974. It was definitely 75 because I was in the record industry and I was sitting with Donnie Sutherland and that's when Sounds Unlimited went Colour. Oh. So it was pretty exciting. How did I get into the record industry? Well – my mother found this ad in the paper. I had previously gone to a mailing house. You press the buttons. You, tele- yes, I know what you mean. Tele- Te- is it telegraphist? Oh, telephonist. Telephonist, you, yes. You, you plug in. You to- plug in. That's what I was doing for the general manager of Progressive Mailing House. Very nice man. And I thought, this is great. I'll have the opportunity to learn how to do a little bit of graphic artist in his with the uh, art department. And I did. I learned how you cut and paste back then. I think cut and paste as in digital. Scissors. Scissors, yes, and glue. <laughs> and, and working with design. And it was, uh, it was very fun, but I was bored out of my mind and also lost all these calls. Oh. They liked me. They thought she's so bubbly and happy and everything, but she really is – Pathetically unskilled at anything, really. But I did manage to learn to type. Oh, this is a funny story. See, my mother, she used to work at Universal Pictures at 19, and she was a top uh, shorthand back then, you know, in the 40s. You you learned shorthand, very good typing skills and speed. And she was working with the general manager of Universal Pictures. Big deal. Not that I was impressed when I was a young person, but, you know, as I become adult, I go, wow, was in the family, this whole thing. My mother was with the Universal. Then she joined RANS when war broke out, and she was number seven of the Women's Royal Australian Navy to sign up. Mm. Pretty incredible. Very incredible. Yeah, and, in fact, she's in the War Memorial, her testimony, not her body. <laughs> I was just about to say that. But <laughs> they did do a big... Dis- she's mummified. Yeah, no, she's right. not. Don't be horrified. No, 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 no she's not. But uh, yeah, my, my beloved mother died um, in 2000 or oh, 2016. So she's uh, watching watching from above now and uh, orchestrating what I should be and shouldn't say. <laughs> so your mum found an ad in the paper. Can Can you share that ad with us? Yes. Well, my mother kept all my backstories and she found the job in the progressive mailing house as well and she knew I just was bored and was unhappy so she was always looking for jobs for me so my mother found this job in the paper big RCA uh, logo assistant advertising publicity 17 to 19 years our very funky advertising and publicity officer desperately needs a cluey young assistant to help in all facets of her function. We require a good typing speed, but here's the good news. No shorthand. <laughs> You'd be involved in national advertising, publicity, promotions, merchandising, local and international recording tours, continuous dealings with the needs of the media and become part of a young progressive team. The chances for personal advancement are outstanding. <laughs> if, if, now, this is a clincher, and this is really how I got the job. 
If you are compatible with Sagittarians and Librans, dream of working in fresh air and would love to believe that you have something to offer in any situation, call Sandra, blah, blah, blah. RCA is located in beautiful surroundings at North Ride and off-street parking, canteen, credit union and active social club. Sandra is waiting to welcome you with open arms. I love the Sagittarian. Oh, I mean, that this, really must have been right up your alley. This was very, this was the 70s. And what did we do in the 70s? We all used to check on astrology, what the stars said about us every day. That guided our course. I was an Aries. So anyone who knew anything about the stars, the compatible ones are Aries, Sagittarian, Libras. So that's how I, I, Apart from the fact that I wasn't very good, I did not do shorthand and I could barely type is, I think, the reason I got the job. Well, most young people these days wouldn't know what shorthand was, but shorthand and typing skills were what you learnt at TAFE. Yes. So, Annie, you went on, you know, not too far down the track after starting to work with some of the biggest names in the music industry. Mm -hmm. And being a young woman, how did you remain grounded and how did you start climbing the ladder? There's a double barrel question yes, for you. Yes, yes. Well, back in the day, media used to send in print media, I'm talking about, and, and, and some television, but there was no sounds yet and there was no countdown. They came in 75 and 76. So our main media outlets was print and radio to get your records promoted. And you only had AM. So... I was not, all I was was an interested teenager in music. I'll never forget when I did get this job, the advertising and promotions manager was this, he was probably about 27. He was gorgeous. The loveliest, loveliest guy. So nice. He was so no chauvinist like the rest of the, the gang mob or the boys. It was a boys club at um, RCA. See, back in that day, women were only ever secretaries. Mm, that that's was right. it. That was yes. secretaries. And they'd sit outside the boss's office. So, but Doug Amati was a really, really very progressive, non-chauvinist guy. And he was just delightful to be working with. Anyway, when I did get the job, I, do you remember we used to wear Q clothes? That was yes, our clothes. Mary Vale and Q. And I remember my mother, I didn't have a driver's license. My mother drove me to this fresh outdoors was North Ride. Yes. That's what they're referring to, which at the time was very countrified. It was. Mm. It was really just industrial states and it was very pretty, the factory out there. And uh, she dropped me off and I remember it been raining the night before and I had those cork clogs, you know, those cork clogs. Yeah. Okay. So I, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about at an interview. I hadn't done any interviews before. Couldn't show them. They didn't need shorthand. And I thought, oh, maybe they're going to ask me to do a typing test. You know, I was like, I'll fail because I could type without not looking at the paper. You know, we had to yeah, do it yeah. like that. I walk in and my cork clogs went straight into the puddle. <laughs> so I get to go down this lino floor to go to my interview and I'm squeaking all the way. As long as you didn't fall. No, it didn't fall, but it was pretty funny. I was thinking to myself, they're going to think I'm a goose. And by the time I got into the office, he was very friendly, introduced me to his assistant. I was the assistant to her as well, Sandra. And they were playing a David Bowie interview. And I'm listening to this David Bowie interview, and they kept getting all these other men, the advertising manager, the general manager, they'd all come in and say, oh, 
uh, Doug, when I asked you about this, but it was really just to check me over. So I got checked over by at least 10 guys, salesmen, you name it, dropping in and seeing Doug, and they're obviously doing their scoring. And I remember he asked me about David Bowie, what I thought of this, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, it's just an interview, so what? And I think they wanted to see that I was going to be gushy and really excited, and I was going, oh, that sounds good, you know, I'm thinking, because I was never, ever in adoration of I didn't worship any artist. Yeah. Never did. I liked them, but I wasn't a worshipper. Where Probably a good thing. It was perfect because I, I wouldn't have lasted. I had to deal with them. And I ended up, oh, yes, I had a lot to do with David Bowie much later. But anyway, I got the job and they told me, well, I said, why did I get a job? It wasn't my typing skills, that's for sure. <laughs> and, said, and it wasn't your shorthand. <laughs> no, there was none. And he said, oh, he said, you were cute and pretty and all the guys liked you. I was like... Right. Could you imagine today know, going for a job like that? Yeah, anyway. But anyway, so that's how I started. So eventually what had happened was I was working... Believe me, I was bored out of my mind because there was no fun. There was no going out. There was no promotional things happening. It was really just admin thing. You're sitting in the office. Everyone go to the pub once a week and the day would be gone, Friday afternoon, pub time. And I wasn't a drinker. I, I didn't even like alcohol back then. And they'd all just to talk rubbish just carry on and just sit around all the girls would be you know they were nice girls they're just all laughing i think this is so boring i can't stand it <laughs> anyway doug and marty never used to go to the pub he was more progressive fun but anyway it eventuated there was a love triangle going on in our office so doug had fallen in love with the woman who had my job she'd gone to london sandra the girl who i was working for with him she was in love with doug and and he had a bit of a thing with her, but realised he was still in love with Julie. And anyway, he took off to chase her down in London. And then it was just me and Sandra, and Sandra couldn't cope with him being gone. So it was just me <laughs> left there until they brought in another guy. And in the meantime, before that happened, I was building up relationships with a lot of the media on the phone, like News Limited, Fairfax. They'd, all they do was call you to ask if you could send out – you send out a big review list of all the new releases and they just tick them off and, you you know, they go, I want, I want number 10, this one, that record, this record. And I'd say to them, have you heard this one? It's really good because I'd listened to all of them. Mm. This was either – jazz reviewer, rock and pop reviewer or contemporary or country music, whatever they were reviewers of, because that's really what it was, reviewers. And then you would get the printed stories, but that came from articles from the States. Mm. So I started to build a good relationship with them just on the phone, and the sales manager was a very nice man. I said, Barry, I said, I think if I go into some of these places, Woman's Day, News Limited, Fairfax, and I talk to them, I could really get some more mileage. He goes, what have we got to lose? He said, go. And I said, but I don't drive. He goes, I'll just put on your expenses. <laughs> nice. Well, get taxi drivers, taxi. So taxi drivers back then were like your chauffeur drivers. Yeah. They all had their special uniform and they all knew you personally. So I ended up going in there and this is what, this is a funny story. My, may I continue? Yeah, yeah, yeah you can. The funny story was my first meeting was with Matt White. Matt White was a showbiz legend and he would worked on Fleet Street in London. He was friends with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and he was a raconteur, great storyteller. 
and he had his own column and he used to do all these big featured stories in the mirror when the mirror was still going. Anyway, I managed to, on the phone, book a meeting with him just to come in and see him and give him some records, even though he wasn't a specific um, reviewer, but I thought there's some records here he might be able to glean some good stories from. Anyway, so he pops his head out and saw me sitting in the waiting room at News Limited. Yeah, I was 19. He, he, he was probably, you know, 30. And he gathered a couple of guys and says, we're going to the pub. I went, okay, so that's where we do all our business. But because I was, you know, attractive and cute, not too bad on the eyes, got the boys and we all went down. And I was very shy about talking about product because I hadn't done that before. And anyway, we're sitting there, they're ordering me wine, and we hadn't even eaten in the pub at this point in time. It's about like midday. And they're ordering wine. I said, oh, look, I'd prefer an orange juice. No, 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 have some wine, have some wine. And they're all chugging down the beers. And everyone's going in rounds and everything. And there was a plant next to me. And I thought, I'll just uh, I'll just tip some of them out while they're not looking in the plant and just sip away. And that'll do it. And I'm not even drinking water. And then eventually the rounds kept going. I finally got up to go to the bathroom. And I felt the mirth move. And the whole ceiling was going around. I went to the bathroom and, of course you know, good old little chunder there it was. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll go back. How am I going to cope with all this? I'm just sitting there listening to them. I haven't even had a conversation at this point in time. Finally, I get back. He sees my face. I'm trying to flash my face up to look like I'm not grey, but I was. Then he said, get her an orange juice. (laughs) So that became my famous line where we'd go out to events or concerts or anything and all the different concerts I put on. My name was Getter and Orange Juice. <laughs> well, at least you didn't succumb to the, the drinking habits that they did. So, Annie, this first interview with this guy, mm. was this the start of you really making a name for yourself? Uh, the interview with uh, – you mean the meeting with the, Matt White? Yeah. Yeah, that meeting with Matt White began my journey where I built a relationship up with them, him and the other journalists. Jim Oren was another one. And they really liked me and I was able to talk them into writing stories about various artists because Arcee had had a good catalogue. Elvis, you know, Abba came much later. That was in 76, 77, but this is 74. And, you know, Lou Reed, but, I mean, there's a you know genre there. I mean, kinks, but not a lot of other big acts. It was mainly country. Mm. Charlie Pride, Dolly Parton, they're all good, but they weren't the pop and rock and roll like Warner Brothers had. They had a lot of great hours. So I was really looking for some interesting stories of maybe the the um, secondary artists that hadn't got a lot of coverage. Mm. And I was finding them because I listened to the records and I come up with an idea, sell them the story, and then we're on the way. They started writing all these interesting stories. So much so where the Sony and just CBS then were going, how are the, how is RCA getting all these covers you know, inside spread stories on these not-so-big albums because it was a personal approach. Obviously, you did a really great job with that personal approach. It proved that it's all about relationships. Yeah. It's all about uh, building up a rapport, building up a trust. People like you. You look after them. They take care of you. And that was my motto from a young age. You know, I was taught to take care of others, respect others, be nice to people, be kind to people. My parents very much instilled that in me. 
don't always be looking at what you can get more than what you can give others. Mm. You should be more of a giving rather than – my mother says just don't be selfish yep. a lot. So you said it in the know, like and trust, which mm. is a really good motto for people who mm. are selling anything. Yes. Is that people have to know you, they have to like you and they have to trust you. Yep. And then they might buy from you. That's right. You did a stint in the US. What were you actually doing there? Well, after seven years with RCA and probably the biggest, what my claim to fame is, was um, helping break ABBA, uh, which was 19, they started with RCA in 74. I went on to promote their records when they came out for that whole period of time. But they were not an easy sell back then. RCA, we had, the first records were Ring Ring, Waterloo, SOS, and 2SM was a very rock and roll Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, and ABBA. My teenage years, <laughs> yes. yes. ABBA was too poppy, too teen tweeny, and they didn't want to play their records. They didn't want to play them, and they ended up being forced to play them because by now Countdown was supporting them, Donnie Sutherland was supporting them in sounds, and they were showing the film clips, but Countdown has a huge demographics. So they were forced to play. But my famous words used to say to them, this is before Dancing Queen became a hit and before Fernando mm. and, of course, all the others. But I used to take the records. By now I'm I'm the promo um, manager for Sydney and I'm going to radio. So I was the first female record executive and that mm. was not an easy climb. But, you know, I had more women, not all women, but a lot of women were denigrating me. The tall poppy thing. You know, why is it that a woman has got to the top you know, she must be sleeping with the bands. <laughs> no, she must be sleeping with the bands. Oh, then, then, oh, she's not sleeping with the bands, and they called me something else. Uh, who women who don't sleep with men? And then, um, oh, then they had no evidence on that. And then, so she must be sleeping with DJs. No evidence on that. So they just gave up and thought, you know, uh, because I was straight. I Maybe was, she's just doing something right. In the end, the ones I won over were the artists and the DJs and all the music presenters and everything, because I had the relationship with them. They knew what I was doing. They knew I was Doris Day. (laughs) I worked hard. I was well-organised. I was personable. And and I knew what I was doing. You You got a good reputation. Yeah, I had a good reputation. That reputation ended up preceding me. So I ended up with ABBA that they promoted – when we promoted them, I used to go into Ram Magazine, which was the big rock and roll magazine, and 2SM, and they used to say, I'll get rid of that. S-H-I-T, about Abba's songs, and I'd say, listen, you mightn't like them, but thousands of others will. Now being a little more prophetic, imagine if I'd said, you mightn't like them, but millions of others will into the 21st century, which is what happened. Mm. Their music become perennial. Even Abba had no idea. They thought, mm, maybe we'll last about six or seven years. That's what, that's what they thought. But anyway, they exploded with the hit, Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen, and then all the rest is history. So many came out of that. But so their way of thanking me, they invited me um, to tour with them in 77. Their only one tour, which I shouldn't have been on the road because the general manager and the national promotions manager. But um, because I just worked with them, ABBA, in 76 on their first tour to Australia as a promo tour of Bandstand with Daryl Summers, they did a promo tour. We, we hit it off. And their manager knew what groundwork I was doing for them, you know. So they invited me <laughs> as much as the, the record executive men were horrified because the managing director, who was American, very supportive of me. And he said, you know, 
Abba wants you to come on the road. So I said, oh, no, Mr. Cook, it's not my job. I'm the Sydney girl, you know. He says, if Abba wants you, you're going. <laughs> so that's it. I went on the road and it was the most phenomenal tour. And we did a – there's a whole film about it that's been out there. Their way of thanking me, they flew my sister and I to Sweden the following year um, to thank me and I holidayed with them. Um, in Stockholm and went to their island. So they—they were the days when artists really did appreciate and showed it, showed their gratitude. Annie, you chose a song by Renee Greyer. It's a man's world. Yeah, how interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And particularly at the time. Yeah, so really you were working in a man's world. You started at aged 19 and you worked your way through RCA and helping to promote many, many bands and ended up in the US and an amazing life in a man's world. Shall we listen to that song? Yes. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. Today in the studio with me is Annie Wright and Annie landed her first job in the music industry with RCA after answering an ad in the paper in 1974 and she has spent her whole career in the music industry and it's a fascinating story. So Annie, we just played a Renee Gayer song. Can you add a little bit more of the story to Renee Gayer, please? Yes, just talking about Renee, arguably our greatest soul singer that Australia has ever produced. Renee was my first Australian artist that I work with. Lurie was my first international artist. So that'll give you an indication, two difficult people, whether you're going to last the distance, that was going to be the big test. Renee and I, we were the odd couple, but we had maintained and still today have a great friendship. In fact, a good weekend story that was uh, written about us, Renee said, Annie was pretty, blonde, perky, bubbly, the opposite of me. I was anti-perky, stupidly serious about my music, and she was from the record label. And in those days, they were sort of the enemy, them and us guys, the musicians. But I grew into Annie. She walked me through the PR valleys of doom and enabled me to emerge relatively unscathed. (laughs) Um, And something very, very good she wrote. She said, Annie is very sensitive, but she's a tough operator with a sweet pixie facade and she knows how to do a one-two punch with a silk glove. (laughs) Oh, I love that, a one-two punch with a silk glove. That is priceless. Isn't it? So... Was Renee the reason you ended up in the US? No. Um, Renee uh, eventually um, was – her contract was up with RCA. She wanted to move to Mushroom Records, which Michael Gadinsky, the late great Michael Gadinsky, um, had his label. He and Ray Evans managed Renee. They wanted her on their label and eventually she went to uh, Mushroom Records. And he knew me because he saw me in the business. He knew how well I was able to handle Renee. And so we had a good relationship. And eventually, Michael, after seven years at RCA, he offered me a position to open the Sydney Mushroom office, since it was a Melbourne office. So I did that. And I also did his frontier touring publicity when he bring out acts like Police, 
uh, UB40, Stray Cats, many, many, many artists that start that broke here. And then Michael, after two years, sent me, posted me to the US when I thought it was going to be a, a man, a man's job, being a man's world. Of course. Uh, at 27, and Michael was very pro-women. Uh, he knew they worked harder than men. <laughs> and, Didn't uh, spend quite so much time at the pub drinking beer, only orange juice. That's right. That's right. And anyway, so I got the position of Director of North American Operations of Mushroom Records, which we called Oz Records. And that began my journey living in the States for many years. Something else that you became very passionate about and actually, you're speaking on Story Room shortly about things dear to my heart, but I think one thing that's dear to your heart is the plight of farmers and landowners against coal seam gas. Can you share more about that? Mm. That came about in 2013. I was uh, staying with my friend Wayne Young in Byron Bay and his wife. He was our, probably one of Australia's greatest uh, conservationist, environmentalist. I introduced him to John Denver in the 70s. We'd all remember him from Crocodile Dundee. He was a producer of that, but more on the environmental one film he made was Fern Gully, which was a very, very big animated film about conservation. Beautiful film. So anyway, Wayne was very much across what was happening with coal seam gas because the mining company were moving in to Bentley, which was the Byron Bay district. And so I was very ignorant. A lot of cities folks like us did not know back in 2013 because it really hadn't hit our shores. It was mainly in Queensland. So he talked me into meeting the Lock the Gate people and I was horrified to hear what was going on. I ended up going to Chinchilla in Queensland where they had ravaged the area and it was in a bad way. And I met Dane Pratsky. When he first asked me to get involved, I thought, well, look, I'll just do this for a couple of months, wave the banner and uh, see if we can get uh, people's attention. And I remember creating the name Aussies Against Fracking after I looked up about fracking in the States and I noticed that Yoko Ono did Artists Against Fracking. I thought, whoa, she, they know a lot about it over there. So I'll get my artists to be artists, uh, Aussies Against Fracking. So I put out an email to a lot of my entertainment friends, both in music and film, invited Reg Mombasa and his brother Pete from Mentals because we were close friends, Kevin Burrish and Ash Granwell. <laughs> the two people that came back to me within minutes was, God bless her, Marsha Hines and John Waters. And I thought, they know about this. <laughs> yeah. So they all became involved. In the end, we did a concert out in the paddock. We end up, I was only going to do this for a couple of months, but people know what it's like when I become passionate about something. And I'm a child of war vets. My parents were both war vets. And I don't like injustice. And I don't like it when our country is duping our good-hearted country people and lying to them and when I saw that you could light the Condamine River and I met the people and they had nosebleeds their children, the cancerogenic uh, was airborne, what was taking place, the carcinogenics, the carcinogenics. Yeah. it was airborne where there was duco coming off the cars and the mining company were arguing saying it was a new bug in town yeah I'll say it's a new bug, it was a new you know, lethal bug called coal seam gas Mm. So what I started out doing for a couple of months, I did for five years, and we put on five concerts. 
I had Jack Thompson narrate because Jack was a friend and also I was his publicist, uh, Fractured Country, the film about exposing an educational film on coal seam gas. And also my friend, I produced his uh, single anthem, No Fracking Way, Leo Sayer. Yes, and I've listened to the song. It's wonderful. It's great. And so within a couple of years, this is what musicians, entertainers and people do. Basically, I was like the general in the army. I I mobilised the cream of Australia's talent and we raised the awareness. So by the time 2015 came, everyone knew what fracking was. Amazing work that you did. And, and we got victories too. We, I, I moved into politics after that and we had seven areas where it was removed in the well, districts. Well, kudos to you. That's a really amazing a result. Another song that you chose, and of course it would have to be an ABBA song, I Have a Dream. Yes, yes. Well, yes, my history with ABBA was, was seven years working with RCA and I really saw... Uh, I really love their music. I, I just loved what they were all about. It was uplifting. Yeah. It made you feel good. It was feel-good music. And there was nothing warped or nothing kind of heavy and, you know, you want to go and slit your wrist type songs, you know, that which were definitely around. Absolutely. Apart from well-crafted songs, I mean, those girls, their voices, their harmonies were absolutely stunning. I was the fish against going on stream when I was promoting them because it was very much hate Abba was around at the time until Winner Takes It All and all those other great songs came out and they were recognised and honoured as the greatest songwriters of their era, uh, which is beyond a bit. So why did I choose I Have a Dream? Because that became my theme song. I really thought you hold on to a dream and you'll see it come through. And for all of those who have a dream... This is Abba. I have a dream. Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. Welcome back to the Aging Fearlessly show. I am with Annie Wright, who spent her whole life from 19 to now, 19 years of age, 1974, right up until today, working in the, in the music industry and the film industry. Annie, you're currently working on a documentary about women in the music industry. Why is this project of particular importance? Well, yes, um, it is because women have been segregated and uh, oppressed in so many ways when it comes to equality in the music industry for decades because I established a lot of friendships with many of the women going back to Little Paddy Days and Dinah Lee, you know, of the mods and, of course, Renee and Marsha and many of the current stars of today. And we all know what it was like battling against male domination in all aspects, whether it was on stage or was whether uh, behind the scenes. So I wanted to honour them. I wanted to really exalt them and to honour them of the great songbirds that they have and the contribution they have made, not only to uh, Australia but to the world. Mm. People don't realise. People from Helen Reddy 
to Olivia Newton-John, to Amy Shark, even to Tons and I, which a lot of people don't realise. This young girl, a busker, she started out, she ended up having 30 countries at a number one record from 2019. Wow. Which is completely unknown. So there's so many that have uh, Natalie Ambrosia, Vanessa Amorossi, apart from all the big ones in the early days, there's just Casey Chambers, uh, Judith Durham from The Seekers. Uh, you know, we People forget all these names, you know. Uh, of course, Helen Reddy, what was her anthem song? I Am Woman. Mm. Chrissy Amphlett from The Divinals. Sadly, she's passed away. Kate Sobrano, Jenny Morris, and, of course, Kylie. Oh, you've got to love a Kylie. Yeah. She's she, done amazingly well. She's done well. amazing things for, for uh, our country. And, of course, Tina Arena. Tina mm. Arena actually won the coveted knighthood of the Order of France. I mm. mean, and the French think she's theirs. Delta Goodrum. Yes. Yes. Missy Higgins. Yes. Melinda Schneider. You know, Grace Knight. Um, as I said, Anna, uh, Vanessa Amorossi, Natalie Ambrugli. People don't realise how big they are. And, of course, Darwin's First Nations, Jessica Malboy. Oh, she has she has some beautiful songs, and yeah. you know she was she's made in a, a music in competition. A, yeah, and she made it bigger in the Sapphires. Oh, that was a great movie, fabulous movie. And of course, Sia, you know, she obscured her face and wore a wig so that it was all about her music and not what she looked like. You know, and as I said, uh, Tons and I, her song, you know, was called Dance Monkey, and it reached number one in thirty countries, smashing all ARIA awards. So these are just some of the artists that would be highlighting and we'll be able to tell their story. So Glenn A. Baker and I will be part of that journey with them, talking to them and hearing all their wonderful stories of what it was like, you know, to break that glass ceiling. You know, because in the early days, women were objectified. They were novelties. They were all pretty much ornamental. Yeah. And that's how they were viewed back then. So they had to really fight and struggle hard to be recognised for the singer-songwriter talents as they are. Of course, with the advent of social media, people, a lot of artists can do their own thing. They have their own management, they have their own licensing to do their own, produce their own records mm. and, and also distribute them as well. So that's a, a really good thing that's happening. So we're going to talk about that in Aussie Songbirds. How long before you think that'll actually be out? Well, we're only in our pre-production stages and development stages. We have done a shoot already. I would say about a year. Oh. Yeah, I know. Will you come back then and tell us all about it? Perhaps you, you can bring some of the artists. <laughs> I will, I hey, will. Any song by John Denver. Yes, it's a real favourite of mine. If you, if you think of the words, it's such an environmental song. It's It's speaking about the love of nature. But because... I worked with John when he first toured in Oz in 76 and again in 78, and he was a real pioneer of conservation and caring for our planet. He taught me uh, our responsibility to the environment. Then when I moved to the States in 82, John and I caught up. He was divorced. I was single. We started to go out and date and do a lot of work together, and I toured with him, and we remained lifelong friends um, until his untimely tragic death um, from a plane crash in 97. Mm, very that, sad That moment. song's very special to me. But he didn't write it for me because he's 
former wife was Annie, so it's just coincidental that it was that. But he did sing. His song to me was uh, My Sweet Lady. Ah. Yeah. So this is Annie's song by John Denver. Welcome back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. My guest today is Annie Wright. We're talking about all things music, her career in the music industry, in the film industry, and her passion for helping save the, the environment. Annie, like me, you're in your 60s and you're still working on interesting projects. Can you share what drives you to keep going? Well, I've said to other people recently, I'm just getting started. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm just getting started. (laughs) Yes, well, I, I think through life we all go through trials, adversities, and it's learning how to cope and how to manage those struggles and to return to what really is important to you. And it's people. People. People is makes up everything. I mean, you know, you you can have so much material things, but you're never, ever going to be satisfied, never happy with that. But it's all about relationships, how you relate with people. And also, I'm a woman of faith. I have a great relationship with God, you know, so that is really what's kept me going and inspired me. And so I do what I love and I love what I do. And people and my faith is really is what grounded me and what motivates me and what moves me to exciting things. And I have a great, great God who shows me all the way and and blesses my life. (laughs) Annie, can you share a pinch yourself moment? Actually, that's a silly question. I know there's going to be 25,000 of these, but is there one pinch yourself moment that really stands out? Well, yes, interestingly enough, I did. I was pinching myself with that. I've worked with some of the greatest uh, superstars in the world, both in music and film from, as you know, John Denver, ABBA, Springsteen, Mick Jagger, etc. And when I was living in the States, after uh, I had my own consultancy with Mushroom separately from that, and I was invited to work with and promote them, Crosby, Stills, Nash mm. and Young. Young wasn't with them all the time. They were just called CSN, Crosby, Sills and Ash. And when I was, as a young girl, my, as a teenager, one of the first records I got was Crosby, Stills and Ash and Neil Young, you know, after the Gold Rush and Harvest and everything. So I would be, we're talking big amphitheaters, 100,000, and here am I, and I mainly just promoted uh, radio promotions, and I came up with this award-winning idea, which won an award in America in promoting, because they were looked upon as being heritage acts. This is from 85 onwards. They weren't like, you know, back when we were crazy about them in the 60s. So, yeah, that was a pinched moment that I got to work with them and then, in particular, became quite close with Graham Nash. Annie, who most influenced you in your life? Uh, undoubtedly my mother. I mean, she was, they don't call, I I don't even like to use the word feminist because it's really been um, misscrewed and uh, bandied around in the wrong way, like burn the bra type of 
feminist. My mother was a true feminist because she she basically taught me that I could do anything a man could do. So I never, ever, as a young girl, ever saw there was a difference between inequality-wise a male and a female in the sense where I was a bit of a tomboy, yet at the same time I loved playing dress-ups and did acting and all that sort of stuff. So I, I love the contrast of what we have in all of us, a bit of a male, a bit of female type of attributes and ways. But my mother was the influence. She And as I said before, she worked at Universal Pictures. She was a terrific writer. She was a general manager's, you know, right hand. And she met, um, you know, all the great actors of the day and became Australia's um, number seven of the Royal Australian Navy, so much so... She is in the War Memorial. Her documentary, they interviewed her and they did a big display on it, on her in the latter years. While she's still alive, naturally, they interviewed her for this because my mother was on watch when the Sydney went down. And this, when, the, when they exhumed the Sydney, it was my mother's testimony of what happened when she was doing Morse code and she was on duty at the time that had exonerated the captain and its family. And that only happened in the, in the late 90s. Well, Annie Wright, sitting here today with you in the studio has been an absolute pleasure. You grew up in what was a man's world and things are slowly changing. I'm going to say slowly because it's not fast enough for some of us. You're a woman who Renee Geyer describes as can land a punch with a silk glove. And you're so well respected in the film industry. You have a love for life. You have a love for your family. I know you have a love for your puppy dog too, who's sitting in the car right now outside waiting for us. I really love chatting with you today. So thank you so much for coming in. You're most welcome. I've so enjoyed it too, Karen. (laughs) And you're doing wonderful things in the world out there for those who have a story. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Ageing Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright. There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all I'm to find It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains Swim across oceans wide Live Just let your heart
honey, let your heart be alive. 